You are listening to SALT's Teaching Social Justice Podcast. Hi, my name is Olympia Duhart with SALT's Teaching Social Justice Podcast. And today I'm here with Atiba Ellis from Marquette University School of Law. Welcome. Thank you. So first start by telling us uh, what you do at Marquette. What do you teach? How long you've been there? So I've been at Marquette for two years. Um, I was originally at the Howard University School of Law. That's where I started my teaching career as a legal writing professor. And then I moved on to the tenure track at West Virginia University College of Law. And I was there for nine years and I lateral to Marquette in um, 2018. And here I teach um, election law and civil rights law and property and trust and estates and usually some seminar that is touching on either race in the law or voting rights issues. Thank you. And I have to talk to you today about election law. What has that been like this year or this last several years? Oh, completely quiet. I haven't had to talk about anything (laughs) at all regarding voting. No, I mean, it's been a bit crazy. Everybody is really hyped about it, right? Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, I can't get any rest it feels like sometimes. <laughs> but this yeah. is this is new. Well, it is a new, but this passion and, and very deep interest in election law is new to many people. But you've been doing this work for a while, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I basically wrote my first, well, actually, if we go back, my academic training is not just in law, but it's in history. I have a master's I wrote my master's thesis on the poll tax in the Jim Crow South that set up my first law review article where I was one of the first people who made the comparison between voter ID laws and poll taxes. And that was in the wake of the Crawford versus Marion County decision back in 2008. So, you know, I've been at this for a minute Mm -hmm. and but it is extraordinary, especially from a teaching perspective. Um, you know, I, and WVU was a smaller school, but I would never get any more than maybe 16 students in my open enrollment election law class. But this year I got 55 students Wow! in my open enrollment <laughs> election law lecture and, and to double down on their interest, they're taking it with me, even though it's completely remote. Yes. And I mean, what, I mean, obviously there's a strong interest there. What has it been like for the students from your point of view? So I think that my students have been interested and fascinated. Probably the most passionate day of class was talking about modern day voter suppression. I mean, it's a recurring theme, but the day where we read, you know, the Crawford case and I talked about sort of the, actually, no, I take that back. It wasn't Crawford, it was Shelby County. It was Shelby County versus Holder. 
and that opened up the conversation about what does voter suppression look like in a post section five world and quite literally there were students who wanted to talk about that and there were students who were just going there was one student who was just going off about and just basically parodying you know voter fraud conspiracy theories and it's really surreal because part of my tactic in terms of engaging conversation is realizing that you know only a few people will open up their mic and want to talk if not turn on their video And I try not to be judgmental in any way in that regard, but the chat replaces that. And so students are very kind of open and forthright. And on this day, they were, I'm glad it was a chat because if it were real time conversation in person, I would have thought they would be yelling at each other in terms of arguing about, is it voter suppression? Or is there a conspiracy to overwhelm elections? I've seen that phenomenon with the chats as well. I mean, they they are much more expressive, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I I think it's it's the comments after the post effect. If I'll have to work on the phrase, but I think it's the same dynamic, right? It's one thing when you're sort of front and center. It's another when... um, you feel a little bit of the anonymity of my camera's not on, nobody's looking at me, and I can just throw this bomb in the chat. Yeah, that's a great comparison. That's really a great you comparison. Know. I think you're honest on that. Yeah. How do you manage that as a, as a teacher, though, as a law teacher? Well, I make clear up front, my approach is, look, there is this screen that's over here and I'm reading it and I am paying attention to it in real time during this conversation. And it, and so it's setting up the norm that this is the avenue that you're communicating to me through, I think makes a big difference because I suspect that if they felt like that I just ignored the chat and I was just speaking to the camera, that it would be worse, but, and so in a way this underscores Shelby County Day because whatever restraint they showed in other classes was gone that day because talking about particularly the core question in Shelby County as Chief Justice Roberts framed it was, has the South changed sufficiently to merit a different coverage formula? And of course he answers that question, yes, but that that translates to people like, oh, do you racism much? And then the reply is, what racism? And then that becomes a whole other level of conversation about how is voter suppression a racism problem when all these laws are neutral on their face? 
And, and, and that kind of sets up this challenge of making students confront disparate impact and understand that the words and the opinion don't tell the entire story. And I mean, Shelby County is the perfect case to have this conversation because you read the dissent from the late, great Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And mm. that dissent reminds us all that, you know, the chief wasn't giving us all the facts and, and Congress had good reason to do what it did and kept repeatedly doing all the way to 2006 and the last authorization of section five. Right. So, you know, but it gets to this bigger question of election law is one of these places where unlike a lot of the other constitutional law canon that race is central to the topic, you know, mm -hmm. the 15th amendment is the only amendment in the constitution where the word race is uttered. In fact, it's the only place in the constitution where the word race is stated. Racial hierarchies continue to get replicated and reinvented. Yeah. And, and holding that thought in my head and sharing it with my students, like I said, some of them get it and buy into it. Others of them want to mutter about voter fraud <laughs> as distraction. Or chat about it, apparently. Or chat about, or, well, and the fight happens in the chat. Mm -hmm. and, and yet part of the holding the teaching space piece of this is holding the space of, well, I'm going to call out your comment and I will read what you wrote and then invite people to answer it. And if appropriate, I'll answer it myself. You know, mm -hmm. that the chat isn't a kind of opportunity for you to subtweet the topic of the class. This is actually the space of your engagement. I and, love that. You know, and, and, and the goal is to treat it as such, you know, and to invite students to talk to each other, even if it's in the chat. And then as professor, I'm serving as the bridge, right? Because at the end of the day, and you know, my theme here is that it's easy to want to run away from how an understanding of racism is foundational to teaching election law. And, and, and frankly, it's very easy to read lots of work by very good election law scholars out there. Um, some of it expressly gets into this premise, other of it doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it has to be sort of consciously uttered and recognized you know, from the beginning in order for it to be normalized. Um, in fact, to the point that yesterday in class, 
I kind of pose and hypo straight from the field that what I, you know, I alluded to these, you know, the conversation I was having with, you know, municipal administrators about misprinted ballots. I kind of told those facts to my class and I kind of said, well, what theory would you raise? And one of my students asked, well, it's kind of hard to think about because I'm not sure if there's a racial component to this. Hmm. And I'm, my reaction was, you know, some of these doctrines apply whether it's race or not. And some of them are explicitly about race. Um, but sometimes the, the burden is, or the challenge yeah. is to make what's implicit explicit too. Right. 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 And even if the analysis isn't about race explicitly, it is implicitly. Like, for example, you know, I mentioned the poll tax and the work that I've done there. Um, the major case that abolished the poll tax once and for all is Harper v. Virginia State Board of Elections, 1966. And the court talks about this totally in terms of class, like there is no rational relationship between paying a tax and casting your vote. What people, what's interesting to students, what's kind of provocative to students is when I point out to them that Annie Harper was a black woman from Virginia who lived under the poverty line. Mm. Right. And Evelyn Butts and the other plaintiffs were basically an interracial coalition and that the history of the poll tax explicitly is one of always knowing that it was always about race, but being unable to prove it either on a level of the text or a level of the intent, but it's there in terms of the effect. And again, making the, like you just said, making the implicit explicit in order to recognize that. And I know you're talking to me from Florida. It's the same story around Amendment 4 yes. and the fine and fee requirement in order to have a completed sentence so that one can, you know, returning citizens can get their voting rights restored. Yeah, the right. players have changed, but the game remains the same, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so. Thank you so much, Professor Ellis, for spending this time with us today. Oh, my pleasure.